Hello. Welcome back. And thank you for listening again to the history of the Congo. Episode 12, The Belgian Arab War. Last time we left the Congo, the formerly Belgian station near Kisangani was in the hands of the Arabs. These were led by Tiputip's son Sef and his trusted second-in-command, Ngongo Luteti. It was clear, though, that relations between Leopold's Congo Free State and the Arab Swahili Empire were strained. The Congo Free State now covered territory from the Atlantic River mouth throughout the Congo River Basin all the way east until Basoko. This sat only about 100 miles west of the Kisangani station now held by the Arabs. Employees of the Congo Free State could travel east to west easily through the region along the river by steamship. But this navigation also opened up the southerly and northerly regions. Through tributaries such as the Kasai and the Busira, themselves mighty rivers in their own right, Leopold's men could spread their tentacles. Vast provinces, now called the Kasai and Sukura, were explored, in which the famous Kuba peoples lived amongst others, whom we shall meet much later. But at the eastern border the conflict was unresolved. Anticipating hostilities with the Arabs, the Congo Free State had fortified both the Pasoko station on the river and the Lesambo station in the south. The slave traders, as the Belgian literature refers to the Swahili Arabs, controlled from the Mardis territory in the north, through Kisangani and down to Katanga, where Msiri, remember him, still sat in his boma controlling the rich mining areas. The Arabs were now wedged in within a hundred mile strip between the Lamani and the Lualuba rivers. The first inevitable clash came in December 1890. A Belgian commandant called Le Marinal was ordered to head to Katanga. Leopold II was already trying to appropriate Msiri's land. After a few days travelling, Le Marinal set up camp and ordered Captain Deschamps to lead 230 force publique further east. They were to meet Ngongo Luteti, the second in command of the Arab Kisangani station, who had been sent by Sef to control the southern region. Dressed in humanitarianism, we must be under no illusions that Leopold's real aim was to wrestle control of the rich mines in Katanga rather than the prevention of slavery. The next few episodes will lay that fact bare. But at this stage, we haven't met the force publique which accompanied Deschamps. These were a highly important organisation. By way of explanation, my near-term plan for the podcast is firstly to tell the story of how today's DRC borders came to be. Today's borders were defined at the end of the 19th century. It certainly wasn't a case of people in a distant land drawing lines on a map as many would believe. It was more of an attritional process, where at the margins proxy forces, led by really very few Europeans indeed, won local skirmishes which have set territories in stone today. The DRC is a huge territory in Central Africa. It is home to diverse groups of peoples with many different histories, cultures and languages. Not only were these artificially grouped together, but people of the same kingdoms were split across different colonial states. I propose this needs some explanation to really get us a better impression of the DRC. It very much affects today's events, as we shall see. After this, we will turn to what Leopold did with his enormous land grab. But, um, we haven't seen the worst of this yet. Hold on, and we will get to that. 
I suspect if you're listening to this, you already know some of this, but for those who don't, it truly is horrific. For now, we can say that the Force Public were a body of men who were enlisted in order to provide manpower and military support for the captains of the Congo Free State. It was started in Vivi, on the Atlantic coast, as soon as the Congo Free State was established, and the force grew from there. Interestingly, until 1894, which is still four years away from our current timeline, the Force Public members were mostly recruited from the West African colonies, notably Sierra Leone, Ghana, Monrovia and Lagos. This is why we met the Hausa, who defended the Kisangani station back in 1888. Back in 1890, Ngongo and Lutetti, working for the Arabs, sent scouts ahead to meet the Belgians. He wasn't actually looking for conflict, although with 5,000 troops he did have the numbers. Underlying his attitude to the meeting, he was increasingly resentful at Seth's treatment of him, having received none of the ivory and slaves that he had captured on his behalf. Ngongo Letetti was a former slave himself, who had worked his way to freedom, and by competence and sheer physical size he had risen through the ranks to become one of Tipu Tip's most trusted generals. But he was still subject to prejudice from the Arab Swahilis, who wouldn't let him forget his origins. We shall see later how fragile his support of the Arabs was. The initial meeting between the two sides was unproductive. Ngongo approached the meeting with the utmost seriousness. He arrived to meet the Congo Free State Force in full chief regalia, but he was just met with anger, which he interpreted as disrespect. Deschamps was full of anti-slavery fervour. He ordered Ngongo to the other side of the tributary Lubefu River. This was a hard border as far as the Congo Free State were concerned, but to the Arabs this was a casual and temporary commitment from Tipu Tip some many years prior. Faced with these flat orders, Ngongo was furious as to what to him was a clear rebuke. He left the meeting, but he did take time to review the Belgian forces. He took great confidence in the superiority of numbers he now knew he enjoyed. He bowed his time and decided to attack some weeks later on August the 20th. On this date, he crossed the river and attacked. We have seen before, however, the power of modern weaponry. Just as the tribes had suffered looking down the muzzles of the flintlock muskets decades ago, the Arab firepower couldn't match the modern repeating Mauser rifles which the Congo Free State had. They had never seen such weaponry. The ferocity and rapidity of the gunfire shocked the attackers, and they fled back across the river. They were joined by the local citizens, who had heard many tales of how harshly they would be treated at the hands of the Europeans. They really thought that the horrors that they would be subjected to would be worse than slavery. Such was the propaganda that the population were astonished later when the Free State forces found the camp and freed a thousand slaves, including about 200 women in Ngongo's harem alone. After this, Ngongo showed a characteristic that was prevalent throughout the oncoming Four Years' War. He tried to join the Congo Free State as soon as he saw their greater military might. We have seen this development in the Eastern Congo before. Might had represented right here for some time, and out of survival, people allied themselves to whoever seemed to have the upper hand. This made the war extremely fluid. Underlying all combat, support of the Arab Swahili Confederation was extremely precarious. Most of their number had been coerced into loyalty, and the local troops, who represented the vast majority of the forces, would have seen the demise of their regions. 
If they had formed a cohesive and motivated army, their 100,000 troops in a combined force would have overwhelmed the European incursions easily. This potential military dominance was not lost to Seth, who was the leader of the Confederation as much as there was one. He had plans to push all the way to the Atlantic and capture the whole basin, expelling the Congo Free State altogether. Concrete evidence of this is provided by de Bruyne and Lippens, two Belgian officers who acted as ambassadors of sort at the court of Kosongo, Seth's effective capital. They wrote a letter to the Congo Free State informing them that Seth's plan was to capture the land all the way to Leopoldville, now Kinshasa. It's an alternative history, but defenders of the Congo Free State point to this as a defence of its subsequent actions. A slave trader state all the way to Malibi Pool, then Stanley Pool, was avoided. This was one of the stated aims of the Berlin Conference as we have seen. We have seen the devastation that this would have wrought, but as you know this never happened. An invasion from the east was postponed to the far future at this point. After Ngongo's defeat and subsequent defection, the conflict escalated. Now taking command of the Arab forces himself, Seth crossed the Lamani, the previously agreed informal boundary. Here he entered the Congo Free State Territory in numbers. He overwhelmed the fragile border posts and skirmishers and built a fortress, including a larger fort by the river and a further adjacent fort to the west. He was certainly making a statement. Now representing the Congo Free State, Ngongo, who was supported by Albert Fries, a Liberian by birth, were sent as an advance party. A larger force, led by the remaining Europeans, remained about an hour's march away. A tropical storm with fierce winds and rain accompanied their advance, and they settled down for the night. They had an interrupted sleep, and wet from the deluge, they opened their eyes at dawn to a terrifying sight. The Arab counter-attack was charging at them in the form of a mass advance. Scared and scrambling to defend themselves, they quickly saw the Arab guns failing. The powder on the old flintlock muskets was wet. They seized their chance. In the disarray, a Belgian officer, Freeze, exploited the turmoil and launched a counter-attack. The change in momentum and the fog of war supported them, and they surged forward to take the smaller fortress and continue the attack. This was against all of the numeric odds. Seth himself retreated across the river, and soon after panic ensued. Almost as one, the slave trader confederacy rushed to the river, and hundreds were slaughtered in the water. In this war, no quarter was given. At the final reckoning, the Arab casualties are estimated to be 600 killed on the field of battle, and between 2,000 and 3,000 killed or drowned in the retreat. There was no turning back from this. This was now all-out war. The Southern Congo Free State Forces were now estimated at 25,000 Allied soldiers, 400 force public regulars, probably of West African origin, and six Europeans. Yes, that is correct. Six Europeans who were in command of over 25,000 troops. This was very much a proxy war. But this does a disservice to the wide range of combatants on both sides. In times of battle, as normal, leaders were picked out by the enemy. But lest we forget, a battle won is the next worst thing to a battle lost. As with all wars, there was great human cost, lost in much of the writings of the European soldiers. One British officer, Sidney Hind, specifically mentions a lady crying over the body of her dead chief. She sat with his head nestled in her lap, as the bullets flew within inches of her grieving sorrow. This was a war a long time ago, in a place far away from the consciousness of many of us. But there was sadness in these lands from this conflict.
After this direct defeat, Seth was incensed. De Bruyne and Lippens, the Belgian emissaries at the Kosongo court, were killed. Hearing this, the resolve of complete victory was hardened by the Belgians. They weren't killed by a court or by trial. They were quietly assassinated by 12 knifemen one evening at their residence. The conflict continued for two years, and the firepower of the Congo Free State provided a greater asset than the large numbers of fundamentally mercenary troops which the Arabs could deploy. It was a savage and brutal conflict. We have seen the devastation and lack of value of human life in this region after the slave traders had ripped through the area, and it appears that the brutalisation of some of the people extended to war. 130 years ago, cannibals were fighting on both sides, and this was often the loser's fate. We're not going to dive into this. It's not pertinent except to highlight the savagery. It features prominently in the writings of the time, however, so if you really want to read about it and endure the absolute shock that history sometimes confronts us with, you can. It was read avidly by the Victorians at the time, but it still sends shivers down my spine. These details belong firmly in the 19th century. Horrific is overused nowadays, but sometimes it applies. The Belgians and their allies continued to press east until in January 1893 they reached the major slavery hub, the rich and affluent town of Nyangwe, the Bengal of the East. As you may recall, this was the town in which Tipu Tip hosted Stanley prior to his team's cross-continental expedition. The Congo Free State forces were eager to attack this major town, which sat just east of the Lualuba River. Surrounded by elephant grass, which grew to 14 feet in height, the Belgians were able to creep close enough to the town to build encampments to put the town under siege. For a few weeks, fire was exchanged with the Krupp cannons giving the Belgians support. Interestingly here, the Arabs used deadly half-inch copper rounds as ammunition, which were devastating if they hit. These would almost certainly have come from Nsiri's Katanga mines, showing the trade routes were alive and well in the east. Finally, driven by hunger, the Arabs attacked, goaded by the Belgians' gift of their last chickens, which helped give the Arabs the impression that they were well fed. The elephant grass hid the attackers, and a Belgian column found itself in the crossfire between two Arab columns. The musket fire was tremendous. Only 30 to 100 yards away, but with the Belgians lying down, they did more damage to themselves, and eventually withdrew. As a second Belgian column arrived, the same event happened, and the Belgians exchanged fire with themselves. This shows the utter confusion of a major battle in this war. Finally, the Arabs withdrew from the grassland, and the Belgians advanced to the riverside fort. Here they organised canoes to cross for the final assault. On the 4th of March 1893, they crossed the river. Hundreds of canoes swept across, expertly rowed by the Wagania River people, to the tune of excited and aggressive war cries. Through the hail of bullets, they rowed and stormed the city, and by 10 o'clock that evening, the town was taken. The Belgians wanted to preserve the town, and hoped that the inhabitants would in turn become loyal to the Free State. But after the bitter fighting, this was naive. A few short days later, there was revolt. Troops loyal to Seth had feigned surrender, and street by street, hand-to-hand -hand fighting was required to quell the uprising. Nyangwe, the Bengal of the East, was razed to the ground. Whatever was there previously was now gone. The town of around 30,000 inhabitants was reduced to a single military post. 
The Belgians now prepared for the assault on the effective capital where Seth held court, Kosongo. Kosongo sat to the southeast of Nyangwe. It was positioned at the bottom of a valley and the town stretched up the hills, with a fort guarding the road from Nyangwe. After a short rest, Commandant Darnis ordered two columns to attack. The Belgian forces endured skirmishes all the way, but after six days of marching, they made the perimeter of the town on the 23rd. Although they had lost track of the second column, the first column was astonished to find the defending fort with just a skeleton crew. The Arabs never expected to be attacked so quickly, so the fort was rushed and quickly occupied. There was no rest though, and the Belgians continued to press their advantage. They deployed the entire first column in a continuation of the attack. In a second stroke of fortune, the second column, which had got lost, approached the town from the other side. They had followed the sound of the guns of the first column, Astonished to find themselves under, under attack from both sides at the same time, the Arabs found themselves hemmed in. They retreated on both fronts until finally, in the centre, there was a maelstrom of thousands of slaves, freemen, women and children. The panic, noise and confusion allowed them no time to regroup, and in under two hours the last city was taken. The final pockets of resistance were quashed. Arab allies turned sides or ran into the rivers where many were drowned. They knew what their fate would be if they were captured. But what the Belgians found in the town was truly amazing. Unlike Nyangwe, the Arabs never thought Kasongo would be attacked, let alone taken, and we see the first written account of how they lived. The granaries were well stocked, and there was rice, coffee, maize and grain. There were orchards of oranges, pomegranates, pineapples and bananas, and there were splendid crops of sugarcane. Amongst the people there were carpenters, masons, brickmakers, agriculturalists, armourers and ironmakers. This was a thriving town. However, there was a dark side. There were thousands of slaves. After years of oppression, it is written that they struggled to find direction at their former master's defeat. The literature details that they almost awaited permission until they were sent to make villages. These went on to thrive, eventually supporting the town itself. For the Belgians, there was one last responsibility. The bodies of De Bruyne and Lippens, the Belgian emissaries, were exhumed and given a full military funeral. Seth and the Arab slave traders never recovered. The confederation was over. They retreated north and after a brief but similarly bloody campaign at the station at Stanley Falls, all the Arab stations were captured. By October, the war was finished, with thousands dead. The Arabs remaining travelled north and joined the Mahdists, who still operated sporadically, in what is today South Sudan. Tibu Tip remained a wealthy man in Zanzibar, although he knew his son had been killed and his empire had been taken. He remained a personality there, but not politically powerful, and his intelligence was undimmed in his court proceedings, where he variously tried to recoup or defend legal claims. He died one year after Stanley, the man he had unwittingly helped spark the Arabs' ultimate downfall, in 1905, the same year as the great German explorer Wisman died. Their time was now over. For the time being, the Congo's future was now with King Leopold II, his Congo Free State now extended from the Atlantic coast all the way to the British colony of Sudan in the north, Portuguese Angola in the south, and German East Africa, 
separated by the Great Lakes of Edward, Albert and Tanganyika. It was also now incredibly wealthy, having looted all of the ivory that the Arabs had captured. But still Leopold wanted more. The last African boma still held out, and it was sitting on rich mines that were drawing attention not just from Leopold II, but from the British imperialists to the south, Cecil Rhodes. Msiri, cunning and powerful as he was, was swimming against the tides of history, but just now he still sat on his Katangan throne. Next time we shall see how his mines and Katanga, that small but wealthy panhandle of the DRC stretching into Zambia, was incorporated into the Congo Free State. The borders of today's Democratic Republic of the Congo would then be set, which have lasted until today's date. And that, just as a forewarning, seems to be an appropriate episode to draw an end to Season 1 of our History of the Congo podcast. We will have covered much, but there is still so much yet to discuss as we travel onwards towards today. I am equally delighted and astonished that so many people have joined us so far. In the break, I will aim to create even more exciting content and add more richness to this wonderful country. I also hope to share some news of a charity partnership, as I endeavour to find one whom this podcast can help, which is harder than I thought. So until then, safe travels, and see you next time for the last episode in Season 1.